Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of EO Fire and welcome to Master Leadership. Great leaders ask great questions and this podcast takes you on a journey to master leadership with questions that matter to leaders who matter with your host, Lily Sinabria. Hi, this is Lily, and today we have the great honor of having Dr. Anael Alston with us. For years, Anael, Dr. A. Alston, watched, studied, waited, and prepared to get placed in a top leadership position in public education. Then, in 2015, opportunity came knocking and he seized it to become the superintendent of schools in Hamilton, New York. Little did he know that the position that he had prepared so long for only prepared him for the growth journey that an effective leader must take if they are to lead with significance. Born and raised in Bedford-Stuyvesant, Brooklyn, as one of nine children, Dr. A has been a leader as long as he can remember. Professionally, he has been a leader as an assistant principal for five years, a principal for 10 years, a twice-elected school board member, and now as a superintendent of schools. Dr. A believes that the current narrative and attacks on public education can be changed, but only if leaders, people who have influence in any position they have in education, are willing to step up and go beyond what is required for the position they hold and do what is needed for the field of education. He believes that this begins with doing quality work each day, using all available platforms to share the quality work going on in schools, sharing what we are working on to make our field better, being courageous in decision-making, and being willing to pay the price for doing what is right over what is expedient. Welcome, Dr. Anael Alston. How are you? I am well, Lily. It's so good to be here, and thank you for having me. Well, we're so happy to have you on our podcast. And as you know, this podcast takes us on a journey to master leadership. And we want to do that today by asking you key questions. So are you ready to pour into our listeners? Well, I'm certainly ready to share, and I certainly hope that I can add value to all of the listeners and anyone that's in earshot of this, because I have certainly gained value from the podcast that I've listened to on some of the people who you've had on. So I'm honored to be part of the club that gets to share my story, and hopefully it'll provide some insights and some value to some people. It sure will, and it is an awesome club. I'm learning so much, and I'm meeting such amazing individuals. So, Anael, can you tell us a bit about your path to leadership and what you're doing now? Sure. So I've been a leader as long as I can remember. I am one of nine children, born and raised in Brooklyn, and at a certain point, my mom and dad split, and so it was my mom with eight children. One had graduated and moved out, Mm -hmm. and so I'm number six of nine, and it was fairly clear that the house couldn't function unless we kind of all led, Mm -hmm. and as a middle person, I kind of answered to my older brothers and sisters, but at the same time, I kind of led my younger brothers and sisters, so I would like to think I made the most of it, but... I think those circumstances growing up in Brooklyn in the 80s, Bedford-Stuyvesant to be specific, 
put me in a position where I literally had to do, right? Mm -hmm. And so they used to call it do or die, beds die. They call it other nice names now. So I think that kind of shaped me. That was the crucible. But as I kind of moved on, I had always been just tapped as someone who influenced other people. Many years ago, I was here as an undergrad at age 17 and 18. Here at Hofstra? Here at Hofstra University. And so it's great for me to be back. I was a student leader. And so to transition that to my professional life, I was hired right out of undergraduate to teach in a school in Queens. Mm -hmm. And in my second year, they put me in the gymnasium. They said, well, you're going to be the phys ed teacher. And I said, well, I don't really know what to do. I'm in shape. I was an amateur boxing champion, so I knew something about being in shape. But they said, no, no, the kids listen to you. So we'll put you in the gym with the other phys ed teacher who they don't really listen to. So I was like, hmm, that's interesting. interesting so, okay, they'll listen to me and he'll provide the instruction and it's a win-win. So that told me, hmm, this is interesting. I think I'm leading, certainly the students. And after a few years there, I went to Suffolk County and started teaching in Long Island, which is a very different dynamic. And I started training in my leadership classes from there, I went to assistant principal. I was assistant principal for five years. And in my fourth year, I got to be the acting principal. The principal went out on leave. And so I got to see the different level of leadership. When she came back, it was like, there's two of us here. <laughs> and fortunately, you start getting into the networks at the next level. And I connected with a guy named Skip Vornabelt, a good friend. And he was a principal in Copaig. And this is where my career changes dramatically. He tells me his assistant superintendent for curriculum took a job in Glen Cove, and he's looking for a principal, and I would be great with him. And that was Larry Arenstein. We know him well. We know him very well. <laughs> and so that started a really big upswing in my career because I was part of something special in Glen Cove. So from Glen Cove at seven years, won some nice awards. We did some really quality work, and I learned about leadership and growing and changing and results. And then from there, I went to Great Neck mm -hmm. for three years as a middle school principal. And I had a wonderful opportunity to be superintendent of the Hamilton Central School District in upstate New York. So I went from principal to superintendent with training because I was on a school board at Quag mm -hmm. Union Free School District. And so that's where I'm at now, doing some serious work in a rural New York school district that is high achieving, but that is also going through some change and transition. So that's where I'm at now, and that's my path. That's your path, and it's a very interesting and diverse path, wouldn't you say? I would say it's diverse, and I would say I'm diverse, <laughs> so it's consistent. <laughs> Wonderful. So how would you describe your leadership style? Right, so I don't have any one style. I think leadership is contextual, certainly to be an effective one. Different situations require different types of leadership. For example, a physician in the emergency room probably has a very different bedside manner than the one who has the plastic surgeon doing the nip and the tuck, right? Mm -hmm. And so in a crisis, I'm much more direct and autocratic. Most educational situations are not in a crisis, but my default leadership style is more of a coach. It's I a like laid back that coach. Your default leadership style. Thank okay. you. Because that's generally what I am. And I think you get more out of people by coaching and asking good questions 
And I find that to be very helpful. And I think it stimulates the growth process. Mm -hmm. And I know how to be other when other needs to be. So I want to park there a little bit with the coaching style of leadership. Mm -hmm. I happen to think that that's really effective. Mm -hmm. Why is that so important to be a coach? Well, it will go back to the way I learned and grew as a principal. I remember when Larry Arenstein hired me, uh, we spoke after the interview process, and he said, you look at the pool of candidates, you had the most talent, but you were raw. I know I'm a good coach. So I hired you. <laughs> He's very direct and to the point. I love that. <laughs> he said, what do you do with a gangly seven-footer who needs to gain weight? If you could see your championship out of him, you take him on. Yeah, <laughs> that diamond in the rough. <laughs> so when I would make mistakes, he would ask good questions. It was a big learning curve. But because I wasn't working with a traditional superintendent, I was working with an instructional leader. And that is very different, at least as I've experienced it in public education. I was dealing with an instructional leader who had the capacity and had grown several leaders throughout Long Island already. Right. So and he's a great coach because he asks those key he questions. He asks the questions and points you in the right direction, and he monitors to see what you're going to do with it and then gives you feedback. That's what shaped how I would go about the work that I do, because I saw the results that we were able to achieve, and that's really what got me into that coaching lane. All right, so I do want to give our listeners some information about Larry Arenstein, because you've spoken so highly of him, and he really has been effective with a lot of leaders. Mm -hmm. So if you want to contact him, you can reach him at Larry Arenstein, A-R-O-N-S-T-E-I-N.com. Now, Anael, which quotes about leadership speak to you and why? There are so many quotes that move me. And so I think the one that speaks to me from my earliest awareness of leadership is one by freedom fighter Frederick Douglass. If there is no struggle, there is no progress. Those who profess to favor freedom but yet deprecate agitation are men who want crops without plowing up the ground. They want rain without thunder and lightning. They want ocean without the awful roar of its many waters, right? And there's a whole lot more. But that right there, mm -hmm. to me, always grounds me when I'm in a difficult spot or there's creative tension or even emotional tension, that to lead means you are doing something. And if it was easy, everyone would do it. And so there is a price to pay. No struggle, no progress. You know, you have to move forward. And that's a quote that moves me. And I learned that when I first arrived to Hofstra University, that was posted on the wall for the NOAA program that I was in. And so I was like, okay, this will make sense. And it has guided me throughout the challenges that I have gone through in life because I think professional life aside, if you're living your life, you're leading if no one else, yourself, hopefully. Right. And that's a pretty powerful quote. I love it. And I think it speaks to what you said when you struggle personally, understanding that that's a journey that can help you down the road. It's like tilling the ground for right. something ahead. And if you don't till the ground, 
Don't expect. <laughs> Weeds. Don't expect. That's right. So thank you so much for that. Now, Anil, what type of leader are you inspired by and why? So I've evolved a little bit. I used to really be impressed with results only and exclusively. And I would say I was much more naive at that time. And that's in any kind of leadership. It was about results. But as I matured, I recognized that how you get results matter significantly. Mm-hmm. How you get results will impact whether those results stay with you, whether the blessings that come with those results stay. How you get results matters and how you treat people to get the results you want. And so the kind of leader that inspires me is the leader who can get results while walking the walk and talking the talk. In other words, it's the leader who lives in integrity and gets results. Mm -hmm. And why? It's because that's what I aspire to be. Mm -hmm. I aspire to be the leader who walks the walk, talks the talk, and lives in integrity to get the results. Mm -hmm. And that is what drives me. Mm. And it makes it harder when you have decisions to make that will be unpopular, but you choose to do that which is right rather than that which is expedient or that which is politic, Mm. that which is popular, to paraphrase Dr. King. And so it does take patience, right? And really embracing what Dr. Maxwell calls the law of process. Yeah, I would say it takes patience It takes really an assessment of who you are. Mm -hmm. It takes having good people around you to run ideas off of. It takes knowing where you want to go. It takes knowing, if you want to go back to Dr. Maxwell, the law of navigation. How are you going to get where you want to go? What do you anticipate on that journey? And all of that, I think, helps you shape what decisions you're going to make and why And what kind of integrous calls are you going to have to make? Are you going to overlook the personnel problem that you know is a problem, that everyone knows is a problem? That no one wants to talk about. That nobody wants to talk about. I think we're talking to somebody here. And so, because there will be political implications. But are you living in integrity when you do that? And so you mentioned having an assessment of who you are. Mm -hmm. Can you speak to that a little bit more? You know, we have new leaders or leaders who have been in cultures that don't really cultivate that. Mm -hmm. Or perhaps there's a lot of insecurity. You know, I've encountered many leaders who are amazing but have this insecurity that they don't even see themselves. And that's very damaging. So assessment of who you are is really important. What's the best way to do that? I don't know that I have the best way. I can tell you one way or a couple of ways that I think work, and that is having people further down the road to you who will speak to you, and it's the inner circle. Mm -hmm. Who is in your inner circle that's giving you feedback? And that might mean some uncomfortable conversations. And being open to that. Yeah. If you're not open to it, what's the point? Mm -hmm. And so if you want to know who you are, Look at the five closest people around you. See what they're doing and see how they behave. It's not going to be too far off from what you're doing and how you behave. That's one part. The other thing is I encourage people to hire a coach. Mm -hmm. I have coaches. I don't have a formal relationship with a coach, but make no mistake, I had a, a lunch meeting the other day with a fine gentleman, Alan Pohl, who does a search consultant up in upstate New York, My first year, 
I met with him once a month and took him to lunch, and he poured into me my first year as a superintendent, new to the region, new to the superintendency. This person had been at least 25 years as a district superintendent, which means he was the commissioner's representative for the supervisory district, so he had at least 10 districts that he was responsible for and working with boards and superintendents. Him pouring into me, giving me feedback, and the ability to ask him questions. Now, that helps me professionally in the job, but who do you do that with for your personal life? Mm -hmm. So if I want to be married 50 years, I'm going to ask someone who's been married further down the road that I want to be, ask some tips. And so those are two ways that I find to be helpful, certainly to me, and I would invite people to try it and see if that works for them. We're always learning, and there's someone always down the road a little further who, if you ask them, or if you build relationship with them, or if you add value to them, they're happy to pour into you. You mentioned asking the questions is really being intentional and also investing in a coach. That investment now will pay off. Right. I think so. Okay. So, Anil, what's the best advice you've ever received? The best advice that I've ever received was in a workshop in Glen Cove, and it was a gentleman by the name of Ray Jorgensen. The best advice he gave us was, know who you are, know where you are, look around, plan, and do. Hmm. Now, to me, that has powerful implications for every aspect of my life. Mm-hmm. I have found, and I'm giving away a secret. Okay, giving lean away in, a secret. Lean G- in. <laughs> giving away a secret here. When I interview finalists for a candidate, I will often ask the question. I'll set the context. We're at a social event and we meet and we're drinking lemonade. Mm-hmm. I ask you this question: Who are you? The number of people who have difficulty answering that question, detached from their resume, because I have the resume already, mm-hmm. but I'm not hiring a resume. I'm hiring a person who I am entrusting to work with other adults, and to lead our students and to pour into them. The number of people who cannot answer that question. Astonishing. uh, Astonishing, and I've had people break into tears. Mm. They can't answer, because I'll gently guide them back. No, I appreciate that, you know, you understand differentiated instruction, and that's nice. I I really like your degree from XYZ school. Tell me who you are. Mm. And so the best advice that I received, and it's interesting, I got it, in my 30s, (laughs) Uh, to know who you are, to know where you are, look around, plan and do. I think that's the best advice I've ever seen. I wrote it down. That's a quote (laughs) from Ray Ray Jorgensen. Yeah. And it's certainly a process. Because, Lily, if I may, when you do, you will encounter some things. Right. Positive, negative, neutral, whatever you want to call it. But knowing who you are and where you are will help guide the next decision. I love that. It reminded me of something else. When you ask also, what do you want? People get stuck there. Mm. Not only who you are, I mean, that's a powerful question. And I think we need to really look at that, especially as leaders, Mm -hmm. right? Mm Because the hardest person to lead is always ourselves, right? right? right. But also knowing what you want, what you need. Mm -hmm. Wow, I'm gonna add that. What do you (laughs) need? I'm gonna add yours. What do you need? (laughs) So that's great advice. Thank you for sharing that. And I, what does it mean? And I know you've led in many different aspects and have different perspectives and have grown teams and you know what this looks like. So what does it mean to you to have a good team and how would you build or sustain one? 
So a good team, like a good man or a good woman, is hard to come by, mm -hmm. right? A good team to me is a group that can complement each other's strength, mm -hmm. minimize or manage the soft spots or weaknesses, and deliver results that ultimately benefit teaching and learning in the business that I'm in. Mm -hmm. However, in our business, public education for sure, you're lucky if you get to build your own team as right, a leader. Right, you usually inherit it. Right. Mm -hmm. So often you have to shape one. And so there's a shaping process and there's a building process, and I can share both if I can digress a little bit. Sure, because please. to be practical, one has to really know how to shape one. Mm -hmm. Shaping is more realistic in our field. So shaping, I think, from the leader's point of view, which at my level means the superintendent of the Board of Education, where do we want to go? What is it that we're trying to accomplish? And then you assess the strengths of the people who are on the team, who you inherit, mm -hmm. and you build up on the strengths. And how do you do that? You do that, secret I'm giving away, you want to transform an organization, invest in the people. Invest in the supervisors, invest in the professionals, invest in the power professionals, and hold people accountable to grow together so that the leader must learn with his or her followers. Mm -hmm. That's a big nugget that I learned when we did that amazing work in Glen Cove. Mm -hmm. So you invest in them through professional development, coaching, mentoring, etc. And after that process, you are able to position them and see where they are and where they want to go. Now, one of two things will happen. They will change or they will change. You will change them out of the organization. Mm -hmm. And that is about shaping a team. Mm -hmm. Now, I've had the good fortune of building a team when I was a principal in Glen Cove. And so I hired both assistant principals that ultimately were with me for at least six of the seven years I was there. That's so that was fortunate. And so you think outside the box. And as I mentioned before, raw talent is often not very pretty at first. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but you can't assume you're going to get the finished product right in front of you. Like, when do you? And so then you might also use your network to tap good people. Now, remember, you're hiring people, not resumes. If you're hiring a good person with integrity, with the capacity to learn, with an open and flexible mindset and a growth mindset, you can accomplish a lot. You just ask for the commitment beforehand. When Larry hired me, he said, I'm going to need you for eight to 10 years. He asked me before, I'm going to need commitment for you. Right. And now I understand because he knew he was going to pour into me and not for another organization's benefit. And so then you put them through a hiring process. I specifically didn't say interview. Mm -hmm. And that's a whole nother piece that we could have a conversation on. Mm -hmm. A hiring process that you can assess skills, areas for growth, real-time experience, I tend to incorporate role-playing in the hiring process to kind of see how people respond. And that's, to me, how you build a team. But it's very difficult to build a team if you don't know where you want to go mm. because it's random and it's a crapshoot. Right. And you don't want to do that when it comes to students' education. Public education is, to me, one of the most important things a person could possibly be engaged in for work. Okay, and so that's why I take it so serious. And this is why we do what we do. Absolutely. And building a team also requires that you know who you are and you know what you want. You better believe it. <laughs> so if we don't know those things, we need to get on track and make sure to hire or get a good coach to help us through that. 
get a good coach, ask people, mm -hmm. read books. If we're talking about adult professionals, it's about priorities. What's important to you? Right. What's important to your own growth? And then it will be much easier to make those kinds of decisions. Right. Do I get a coach? Do I just build a strong network of people? And they might not be formal coaches, but they are people who can pour into you, who have accomplished what you want to accomplish already. Right. Now, can you tell us about a challenge that you've experienced and how it has shaped your life? A life challenge or a professional challenge? Either one. Either one. Right, we have time. Okay. Well, my freshman year here at Hofstra, in spring, my brother was murdered in Brooklyn. And that was very difficult. Wow. My oldest brother. And the dynamic of the situation was my mm -hmm. other brother and my younger brother and sister and mother were in Bedford-Stuyvesant. He was killed in Bedford-Stuyvesant. And I kind of felt like we were exposed and we didn't necessarily have the protection that we needed from some possible fallout. Mm -hmm. My brother was a smart guy, but he was also a street guy. Now, I have an uncle who had a lot of street credibility, and we had not been connected in years. And in fact, he wasn't a biological uncle. It was just that him and my father were really tight. Mm -hmm. And so I connected with him, and he was also training boxers. So I kind of felt like my family needed to be more affiliated with him to kind of make sure that protected. we were protected. And pretty much no one was going to ever mess with him. Okay. <laughs> just, just, just leave. But he was in the fight more business. You knew, right. you knew how to connect, right. even back then. Right. <laughs> um, early on, he had been a kickboxing champion, and so he was training fighters. So I decided I would train and start boxing. That's what got me into boxing, just wanting to be around him. And the kind of people who he associated with were the real deal mm -hmm. from the street point of view. And so through boxing, a lot of opportunities opened up. I got to be around very wealthy people. I watched and studied how they moved. I got to see how fighters got exploited. I got to see how fighters waste money. I got to see an awful lot. So you're like observing people. I'm observing. I'm studying. Mm -hmm. I'm watching the failures the miscues, but I'm also fighting. And I'm pretty good because I was a pretty good athlete as well. Now, why do I bring up that? I would not have gone into, I was in college already. Like, I figured I would be into international business. And that shook me on a few levels. So it wasn't on your radar at all? Boxing? No. Watch it on HBO <laughs> on a good Friday or Saturday night or something. But no. But then I started getting good at it. Mm -hmm. And then fast forward. I was successful at it for a while, fought at the national level, and I start focusing in on my career. It wasn't until in the interview for my first principalship, the question was, tell me something that you've done in education that you're really proud of. And I told the story is when I was assistant principal out in East Hampton, an acting principal, but I was assistant principal my first year. I arranged a trip for all the young men in the community to mentor up with an adult in the community. So I had teachers, I had school board members, community members, mentor up with a youngster, a retired assistant principal, all kind of people in the community, take a charter bus into uh, Madison Square Garden, and I surprised them, and I fought and won the Golden Gloves. What? <laughs> what? <laughs> That's awesome. Do you have that on film? Uh, somewhere, yes. Hey, yeah, I'll, show, I'll shoot you a video, yeah. Conversation. So, wait, so <laughs> okay, you cool. want to stay there a little bit. That is so cool. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm imagining the students 
going in and then where's Dr. Austin? He left us here. Right. And then watching you fight, that is like a movie. <laughs> well, <laughs> it was interesting. Uh, and I had had the skill already because I had fought all those years. But that was one accomplishment that I had not checked off the list. And you I didn't hired. experience that. Did you, you better believe that was Larry Aronson who asked the question. <laughs> and the interesting part was he had always been of the opinion that people with exceptional experiences bring a different edge to the position, hmm. be it music, art, sports. If they've competed at a certain level, he always thought that they bring something different. He's right. And so yeah. all of that played a role. Now, I certainly would much rather have my brother back, but right. the situation played out that way. I made some choices based on his death that I thought were best, and that led me into boxing. While I was here at Hofstra, it didn't make me lose focus that I needed to get a master's. In fact, when I won the Golden Gloves, I was a matriculated student at Columbia for my doctorate. So, wow. uh, you know, I, I, you know, <laughs> I, I, I confuse people when they look at my resume. They say, well, what's going on here? What, what, you speak Hebrew? <laughs> you, you're from Bed-Stuy? Like, what, help me figure you out. And I say, well, I'm still trying to figure it out. You're diverse. <laughs> diverse, yeah. <laughs> That's the best yeah, way yeah. to explain this. Yeah. Um, you weren't only working out your mind. You were working out your body. And there's such a strong connection with that. Mm -hmm. but, um, thank you so much for that awesome story. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Looks like a book in your life. So I'm working <laughs> on it. Uh, when I get some time. <laughs> um, so, Anand, can you tell us about one of your greatest successes that has shaped your life and the life of those around you? So that first experience was very, very painful, mm -hmm. and it did shape me, and I imagine it's still shaping me because it shapes the passion that I have for this work in public education. But one of my successes, which I'm thankful to the Most High that I've been the recipient of a few awards for my service, right? Mm -hmm. But I also realize that while I'm the individual recipient, it's because of the people around me and the shoulders that I'm standing on, the people at home, at work, my mentors, my colleagues, friends, who I am representing whenever I receive an award. That's awesome. Thank you. But with that said, the... National Association of Secondary School Principals Breakthrough School Award represented my greatest success because it took the most amount of people and an entire community to rally around a cause to improve a high-poverty urban-suburban school. And we were one of five middle schools across the country to receive that award. And I knew the work we were doing was transformative. I knew that when we took over the school that we were in the bottom quartile in Nassau County for scores on our annual assessments. And I knew that we peaked in the top 25%, comparable and sometimes outperforming high wealth, mostly white school districts. And so it didn't tell me something I didn't know. It validated gotcha. that mm. it can be done. Mm -hmm. Then it becomes, does the leadership structure and politics have the intestinal fortitude to sustain it? Because we wrote the blueprint. Right. And so in receiving that award, it really validated all of the trials and tribulations and struggles that went along that change process and 
not doing things as we've always done it. And that article was written up and the school was on the front of every magazine for principal leadership for that school year. There was a profile on the school. It was an amazing experience. And it's because the people around me did the work. I did my part. But ultimately, the entire community was like, wow, they really, really did it. The one thing that I didn't feel so great about is that uh, the superintendent that hired me had left the year we won it. So it was all of the work that he did in building the team, and ultimately the team went on its way. But and he left uh, a legacy. Yes. there is, is what leaders do. Legacy was on his mind because he knew where he was in his career. Right. He knew he was not going to be looking for another job after this run. But for me, he appointed me at uh, age 34. Mm -hmm. And so I was just getting my feet wet. So for me, it was just trying to do the very best that I could because I know there are people who were brighter than me. But I have an obligation to everyone to make sure that we're trying to meet their needs. Mm -hmm. And I deeply believe that there is no limit on human potential. And so our role, my role, is to try everything I can to get the most out of it. And so that just came together. So I think there were students who I had then and tell me, I now believe I can do something. Mm, that's powerful. It's very powerful. Mm. As you're expressing and talking about the story, it just moves your heart, how you also were able to activate other people's hearts and their minds and how you value people. In full disclosure, I am much better now. I didn't understand the human dynamic potential then. In other words, I went in and did not ask questions. I was like, we're changing that. And I wouldn't do that now. I had a conversation with a fellow superintendent who at that time was the assistant superintendent. And I said, uh, you know, you are right when it comes to uh, relationships with people. And she just looked at me like, are you kidding me? I was telling you that in 2005. <laughs> The look she gave me, and it was a funny moment. All I did is laugh and give her a hug because it was just that look. Right, okay. Right. <laughs> so what would you tell a new leader who's discouraged about their working climate or culture? Hmm. Can I play with this question a little bit? Go ahead. Okay. So I would probably start with the question, why are you choosing to be discouraged? Why are you not choosing to be encouraged by the opportunity to improve the work climate or culture. And so I'm just going to frame it a little differently. Mm -hmm. I just wrote an article that I'm editing to submit to the local paper. And it's basically how Hamilton is using a challenge, declining enrollment, to enhance the educational environment, right? Mm -hmm. And I referenced this book, The Obstacle is the Way, by Ryan Holiday, New York Times bestseller. And it really refers to stoicism as the ancient Stoics would seize challenges and make them opportunities to better themselves or the community or agency. And so the reason why I am pushing this to the person who might be discouraged is because if that's your initial feeling, I'm going to ask you to see it as an opportunity first. And if you see it as an opportunity to build culture, and I'm going to go back to that, then it changes the whole framework and reference and options that are available to you. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Just by seeing it 
as an opportunity changes your emotional connection to the story. You've chosen to tell yourself a story that this is what's going on. So one of the challenges that I've dealt with is the morale of the faculty at my current place, right? Mm -hmm. So in a public way, I heard it. So I said, okay, let me do my homework. Like, what do you do when you have a problem? You do some homework. Well, we know that morale has been a problem in the past. Okay, so that this is a history. How do you build morale? The question of morale is something that an experienced board member is probably going to have a different perspective than a new board member. An experienced superintendent is going to say, okay, I hear you. And a new superintendent might be like, well, how do we handle this problem, right? Now, of course, if you have a network of people, you get multiple points of view. So I said, this is an opportunity. Now, I might be crazy, but low. Crazy like a fox. Crazy, well, (laughs) if the faculty morale is low, then you have an obligation to try and figure out why. Mm -hmm. Here's what we know about icebergs. And I would say that morale is the top of the iceberg. And it's what's underneath that you can't see. Mm -hmm. It probably needs some attention, right? And I'm going to tie this back to the question. And so how do we interact with each other? What is the culture here? We have to find out what the culture is. And we have to be able to look at it at an arm's length distance. With a person with a new set of eyes, you can look at it. Mm-hmm. And then we're in a process of setting board advisory committees. We've set up a structure where the teacher president and superintendent and a board member can meet monthly. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that communication is flowing. Okay, but here's the power the power is in what is the basis of most cultures, and that's communication. And so we're going to do a book study and equip everyone. There's a book called, another New York Times bestseller, Crucial Conversations. Mm. Here's what we know about conversations. If I confront you, Lily, you didn't do X, Y, Z, A, B, C. The human body, you will have some adrenaline shoot up. Maybe your hair will stand up on your neck. The question now is, are you in any position to have a conversation that is meaningful and productive with me? But that is the biology of what happens in a very uncomfortable conversation. Mm -hmm. So what we are going to build on is the ability to equip people, rather, to have conversation. There's protocols, there's reading, and we're going to do that as an organization. And what I do as a superintendent, I do a book read with the community. Mm -hmm. And I got that from Carl Benuso, a mentor who I think he's Hicksville superintendent. He's been around a long time in Nassau County. And so I do a community book read. Last year, we did the smartest kids in the world and how they got that way. So now I'm going to come back to the question, what would I tell a leader who's discouraged about their working climate or culture? I would invite them to first rethink why they chose to be discouraged about it. And it might be some reasons, but have you reframed it as an opportunity first? Because if you view it as an opportunity for you to improve the working conditions culture, and you've given your best there, what has happened in the process? You might have helped it a little bit. You might have started it in the right direction. Now, at the end of the day, we are adults. We have free will. And this is one of the reasons why I am so passionate about making sure we make decisions for children. Our children do not have a say in which schools they go to. Mm -hmm. The parents and the adults have a decision as where they choose to work or not work. So when I took my daughter out of Quag and brought her up to Hamilton, she didn't have a say. I mean, we listened, (laughs) okay? (laughs) Really, it was one person who had to vote, and that was my wife, but this was an adult decision. Mm -hmm. 
And so we have to make decisions that are good for the teaching and learning and organizations that we represent as leaders, certainly in my field of education. And that's how I would shift that. The obstacle is the way. This is an opportunity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, you said something as you were talking about having these crucial conversations and being in this state where your adrenaline is flowing and you're ready to put up your dukes and fight, right? That's not a great time to approach someone or to have those conversations. But also when you're discouraged, you may feel that way as well. Mm. And you may need someone on the outside to help you because when you're in it, you may not see it as an opportunity. Right. So you may need someone like yourself, someone who sees differently. And Mm -hmm. so I also invite people to do that because you've given us great insights. And this is what this podcast is about because there are situations where people feel discouraged, but there is a way out and there's a way of reframing we can certainly shift our thinking to create something different. Mm -hmm. Um, And even if we're not the superintendent or the principal, maybe an AP or a supervisor, we can affect change where we are. Absolutely. And I would argue that just being who you are. So I just spent a week at Teachers College Reading Writers Project with a teacher in the district, right? Mm -hmm. And she went to certain workshops. I went to certain workshops. Guess who has the most influence on me as I develop my workshops that I'm going to do in the fall for the whole faculty? It's the teacher that went with me. There is no assistant superintendent for curriculum, small district, but she has influence over me. Make no mistake, she was the only one there with me at these meetings and different workshops. And so we are going to take a whole day this summer and plan out what's going to happen. And so that's influence. But she sorted out. She kept knocking. And she framed the opportunity. No was apparently not an answer that she was willing right. to accept. That's leadership. That's right? leadership. And so that's why the position yeah. didn't necessarily matter. Mm-hmm. It was who she was mm-hmm. and what she knew would benefit the school and the ability to convince me. It didn't take too that. much. Thank you so much. And I had many leaders describe themselves as lifelong learners. What does that mean to you and what are you learning now? That's a popular phrase these days, and I'm okay with that because it means something. Mm -hmm. But to me, my standard is that I am growing and it's showing. Mm. Right? That's really what it comes down to. Now, I can't grow if I'm not learning. Right. It's not showing if I'm not implementing. And so most people know an awful lot. Especially in education. Well, right. But we also know people who do not apply what they know. Like, let's use the diet industry. I know I could be 175 and ripped. I know what to do. But why am I not? I'm not doing it. And by the way, I don't care to be. (laughs) So that we're really clear. However, most people know what to do. And if you don't know, you can get on the Internet. Right. And so to me, the application of what we know is much more important. And so what I'm learning right now, I'm learning the price of leadership at the superintendent level. Mm. Every day things come across my desk and I have a decision to make. Will I do what is best for teaching and learning for the organization or will I do what is expedient and keep adults happy? Now I've made a conscious decision to do what is right for teaching and learning and I have to navigate the political implications of the decisions that I make. And this is especially true when it comes to personnel issues in small town politics. 
And I've made a decision to embrace that as an opportunity to enhance the organization to serve students. And so that's what I'm learning as a leader right now. And what I'm learning is, if you have the credentials and the skill set, it's not very difficult to be in a position of leadership and transform it into a position of positionship, where you just keep the adults happy and not move the organization along. Because you're vested, because of the salary, because of whatever. Yeah, look, you make your life a lot easier by just sitting back. And, you know, you pick one little thing, you plant the flower garden. And that's nice, and at some level it is important, but then you avoid all of the things that require tough decisions, that require analysis, that require thought, that require impacting the political nature and structure of an organization. And there are ways to do it. And as long as you, I believe, do your work ethically and responsibly and professionally, I think you'll just be fine. Whether you do it for 10 years or five years or three years or eight years, it doesn't necessarily matter when you live in integrity and can produce results. As you know, education is a small community. Mm -hmm. Either you have a good reputation or you don't have a good reputation. And who's saying what your reputation is matters. And so that's what I'm learning. It is very interesting. So I love what you said, the price of leadership. Mm-hmm. And when I think of that and process what you're saying, you don't give up integrity. There is a price to true leadership, and you may have to pay that price for the good of the organization mm-hmm. because you hold on to integrity mm-hmm. and you hold on to what's right and what's the best thing for everybody, mm-hmm. not just to save your own skin. Mm-hmm. And that's a choice. What came to mind is uh, I used to really enjoy listening to Whitney Houston, The Greatest Love of All. If I fail, if I succeed, at least I live as I believe. No matter what they take from me, they can't take away my dignity. Mm-hmm. And when you live in integrity, your dignity, that's the last thing you can take away. Right. And so as long as you try and do the right thing, mm-hmm. you're on solid ground. And that's pretty freeing. I think so. Now, look, it is not the easiest road, but I think you have to have a sense of faith in something larger than yourself. That is an anchor also. And are your decisions in alignment with a higher being? That's, I think, part of leadership also. I'm completely in agreement. Now, Anil, if there was something you could change in education in the U.S., what would that be? Oh, my... (laughs) If there was something I could change in public education, what would it be? I would invest an awful lot more in building leadership and teacher leadership. I think the strategies that are going on now are questionable at best. And as you know, I'm a trained researcher, and many of the things we're doing are not grounded in any research. But I will say this. I just did a workshop the other day at Meadowbrook up in the Adirondacks, the countywide elementary and secondary principals association. And I said, to get the maximum learning out of a building, it will fall on the shoulders of the principal because the principal has the most say in the hiring of the teachers, in developing the teachers, in building the culture where there's a growth model for teachers and giving teachers support and resources. And so in my world, that's where I see the game is played most significantly at the building level. 
And I say that not to minimize the role of the superintendent. Obviously, I think the role <laughs> is important. But a weak superintendent who can kind of leave a good principal alone will not impact the teaching and learning in that building. Now, the principal is hopefully getting that resource and nourishment and support from somewhere else. But a really good principal, a poor superintendent can just be out of their way and they can still get the job done. Now, for the district to rise, now you're talking about board and superintendent. And that's the law of the lid, okay? You're not going higher than the leadership team. And so actually ties into why I believe so much in investing in a principalship. So that's a core belief that I have. Principal leadership and teacher leadership is, I think, your best investment if you're looking at school-wide results and culture for students being able to learn and achieve and thrive, which I believe is a moral obligation for us to provide the very best for our students. It speaks to what John Maxwell talks about. Everything rises and falls on leadership <laughs> and also um, teaching leadership to students. I envision, and this is why I'm doing what I'm doing, a generation that really understands what good leadership looks like and will make choices down the road on that. So mm-hmm. thank you so much for that. Now, Anaya, what have you read that our listeners should read and why? So I'm a voracious reader. The book I'm reading right now, and I am thoroughly enjoying, it's really a book that you do, Psycho-Cybernetics by Maxwell Maltz. Maxwell Maltz was a plastic surgeon. Now, this book has sold about 30 million copies. I think it was written first in his 50s. Now, let me just say that your big gurus of self-help and personal development, Tony Robbins, Bob Proctor, their work, in my assessment, is primarily based off of Maxwell Maltz's book, Psycho-Cybernetics. He was a plastic surgeon who recognized that some people he would do plastic surgery on and their life would change, and some people he would do plastic surgery on and they'd still be miserable. And what he was able to conclude is that it had to do with their Mm self-image, not the surgery. Mm -hmm. And so through this book, he kind of goes through some studies and some exercises and some things one can do to build a better self-image and to actually attract the things that they want. And I find it very interesting. That's one book. Mm -hmm. For those who speak, I'm giving away a good one here. Okay, this is is a secret (laughs) that I'm I'm letting all your listeners know. (laughs) Obviously, I speak a lot. There's a book called Talk Like Ted. And I literally was listening to it for my second or third time. And Talk Like Ted really takes a synthesis of all of the most popular TED Talks and tells the reader or listener what's actually resonating with the most popular TED Talks and what you can do to kind of enhance your speaking skills. And so those are the two things I'm doing right now. And I've heard of that, how they analyze everything, hand movement, eye contact, everything. So that's a great read. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for that. Sure. Now, Anil, you have a lot of responsibilities. Yeah. What do you do on a daily basis to set your mind? I get up in the morning and I try. And I don't do it consistently, but the next part is more consistent. I just try and give thanks for waking up and basic things in my life. Mm-hmm. It takes 30 seconds. Then I get to the office early. And I pray and or meditate, Mm -hmm. just to kind of like let it go. Then I reflect and write. There's three questions I ask. What went right? What went wrong? And what can I do differently? And I write the answers out. And then I 
plan my day. You know, usually my secretary will leave out the things that I have to accomplish. Mm-hmm. And I have a list to do, to contact, to follow up. And I'll fill that sheet out. And I've been using this sheet since 2003. She prints out what is on my calendar. Then I create my to do, to contact, to follow up. And then I take another sheet that blocks my day into 15-minute intervals. And I'll write 8 to 10, meet Miss Sanabria regarding scheduling of her child. Mm -hmm. Okay? Mm -hmm. And everything is in 15-minute intervals. And then I start the day. And so that's what I do at least every structured day that I have. Like, I don't really do that on the weekends because I just choose not to. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's pretty much what I kind of go through mm-hmm. on a daily basis in terms of a structured day. Yeah. Okay, great. And, you know, it just speaks to also balance. Many leaders have long hours, mm-hmm. right? So what advice would you give about maintaining balance? I wouldn't give advice about maintaining balance because I don't really know that it exists. I've heard that several times. Okay. Oh, let me give you an example. Last night I drove from upstate to Long Island, and I got in 2 or 3 o'clock. It was late, and I had to do some prep work, and I slept for a couple of hours on the couch because I didn't want to get comfortable in the bed because I might have missed my morning appointment. (laughs) Okay. And now I'm here, and so there's no balance there. But I will tell you that I am in harmony. I am doing what is meaningful and purposeful to me. I believe this work that we're doing together will add value. So it was worth staying up a little later to make sure I did my final preparation. Thank you. I did get to see my wife and kiss her this morning. My daughter sleeps. She doesn't want to be bothered. (laughs) And so I think people who accomplish significant things don't necessarily have balance. But I am in harmony. Like, I will do something for myself today. And if the sun comes out, it will be on the beach out in Quag, okay? But there will be things that I do to give me the harmony that I think I need and deserve. But it won't really be balanced at this stage of my life. But ask me if I'm happy, yes. Are there some areas that I'd like to smooth over? Yes. But am I in harmony? I think so. I'm in connection with my higher being. I'm in connection with the people who are most important to me. I'm doing work that I believe is meaningful and important. And I'm taking care of myself to an extent. I can do a better job, right? Mm-hmm. Believe I'm not in... agreeing that you could do a better job. Well, uh, well okay. <laughs> I mean, we could all it, it, do right, better... well, we, right. That's the point. We all can do a better job. And so because all of those things line up, I believe I'm in harmony. And so I'm not shooting for balance. And there are days when it's like, oh, today's a light day. And then there are days where I'm in literally 7.30 and I'm not leaving to 11 o'clock at night. And that's okay because there's going to be a vacation that I take. And so, yeah, I shoot more for harmony. And I would call it big picture harmony or maybe monthly harmony or weekly harmony. It really depends. Maintaining harmony, I really like that. Balance is very difficult because all things are not equal. Right. All the different things in your life are not equal. I have difficulty. It's funny. Maybe I'm using this as a bailout. I try paddle boarding, and I have difficulty with balance. So what about harmony? I'm going to have to try and reframe it as an opportunity for harmony. Yeah. All right. So if you were to go back in time, Anand, what advice would you give the younger you about leadership? Patience is your friend. Get very comfortable with your new friend, Patience. Mm. 
I would say, Anael, you should invest in your personal growth and create a plan to do so. You should always be growing as a person. And I would also advise him to seek out mentors early on, Mm -hmm. even if you can only access them through books and workshops. And the most important thing is to do the things that are important to you that you know about. It's not enough, Anael, to know what to do. It's to do what you know to be right, Mm -hmm. to help you along the line. That's the advice I would give my younger self. That's great advice. Now, is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners that we haven't touched on? Sure. I think that how we approach life is a choice. And make good choices because our lives ultimately are the sum of our choices. And public education is the most important thing, I would argue, on the American agenda. And I think we need to keep our eye on it very carefully. Certainly not a conspiracy theorist, but some of the things that are happening at the policy level, I believe, undermine public education. And the good news is countries that have turned their educational fortunes around have documented it. And all one needs to do is take a quick read of the smartest kids in the world and how they got that way. And for our students to thrive in a global economy, we have to equip them correctly. Great. So there are a couple of books that your listeners might find interesting that highlight some of the work on some of my story in terms of leadership. Mm -hmm. And one is Five Critical Leadership Practices, The Secret to High-Performing Schools. I have contributed a chapter to that. The authors are Ruth Ash and Pat Hodge, and that's on Amazon.com. The other book is You're Hired, The Inside Secrets to Landing Your School Leadership Job. Co-authored that with Larry Arenstein. That's on SchoolLeadership2.0.com or eJunkie.com. Also, this spring in March of 2017, I authored a chapter in a book edited by Dr. Donna Y. Ford, Telling Our Stories, Culturally Different Adults Reflect on Growing Up in Single-Parent Families. That's an interesting book with many inspiring stories. And so I invite you and your listeners and anyone interested in leadership and journeys and struggle and triumph and progress and hope for tomorrow to check those out. Wonderful. And that last one we can get from Amazon, correct? You can absolutely get that from Amazon.com, yes. Okay, great. Thank you so much for pouring into not just me, but to our listeners. Well, thank you so much. Lily, I am honored to be on your podcast. Some of the names I've been watching people for years do the work and to be even on the podcast with Lily and these people is like, okay, maybe I'm doing something right. (laughs) I feel the same. I'm so honored. Thank you so much. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Hello, leaders. In closing, here's a quick message. Coaching is the art of influence that underpins leadership in the 21st century. And although it's been around for centuries, coaching to develop effective leadership skills is fairly new to education and grossly underutilized. It is the very thing that can get you from being stuck to being extraordinary. So go to masterleadership.org and sign up to get a free coaching session. Until next time, continue to ignite that leader in you.